Welcome to Covenant Life Church, a ministry that is committed to helping you discover Christ's purpose for your life and leading you towards your best existence by providing you with meaningful ways to affect positive change in your world. Join Pastor Shane as he delivers a powerful and inspirational message for your life today. Because before we can become fearless, we've got to first fear less. Fear is not something that I struggle with a ton. Though I have to say, it's gotten the better of me a few times. On one particular occasion, I'm thinking of specifically this morning, there was a time when I was in the Dominican Republic and I was overcome by fear. And the reason I was overcome by fear is because of something that I did that I probably shouldn't have done, which was pay the guy on the beach who owned the horse $5 to let me ride this thing. Okay, so I say, hey, will you let me ride your horse? He says, no, I can't. I said, how about for five bucks? He's like, all right, you can ride my horse. How long do I got? I don't know. Take it out for a half hour or so. So I jump on this guy's horse. Did I mention I'd never ridden a horse before? And so, but I thought I had these images in my head of how awesome this was going to be riding a horse down the beaches of the Dominican Republic. But he failed to tell me a couple of things. Number one, that this horse that he was riding used to be a racehorse. And so he didn't say nothing about that. But he did tell me, he goes, look, I know this saddle looks a little jacked up because it did. You know, you normally have that horn on the front that you can hold on to so that you can kind of keep your balance. It was missing that piece. He said, I said, hey, where's this piece at? And he goes, oh, don't worry about it. If the horse starts going crazy, just grab a hold of his mane real tight and just hold on to that. I said, all right, we're going to go. And so me, being the kind of person that I am, I don't try to take this thing slow. Right off the, the bat, I'm like, giddy out, kick the thing. And that thing took off like a lightning down the beach. But the problem was, is that saddle that I was on, maybe because I was a little heavier than the other guy, started to slip and go sideways. And so now I am literally riding parallel to the ocean. That's right, the ocean. Because in my fall, I had steered the horse into the sea. And so he's in a full-on gallop, and I'm like going sideways, and I'm yelling, help! Get me off this horse! Help! And I thought about falling in the ocean, but then I thought I might have to pay him a few more dollars, because I'm never going to get this guy's horse back if I jump off. He's just going to keep running. So I decided to do what I thought I could do, and that's fling my body over to the other side of the horse. But now I'm parallel on the other side, and now I'm steering into all of the sunbathers and everybody trying to enjoy a relaxing day at the beach. I am cruising through them, and I'm going, I can't stop this thing. They said, tell him to stop. I said, I'm trying, but he doesn't speak English. This is a Spanish horse. And now I've got my arms around his neck like this. I'm driving as fast as I can. And this thing's about to kill me. And somebody said, grab his reins. Grab his reins. And so finally, I pull back on the reins. And I say, whoa. The problem wasn't the horse. The problem was my approach to riding a horse. And... The problem also is not just the way that I ride a horse, but my approach sometimes to life can be that I tend to read the instructions after I start. I tend to jump in before I've tested the water. That's sort of my nature. I kind of live a little bit on the edge. But it's not just me that struggles here, but 
All of us. Maybe you don't have that sort of risk-taking mindset that I'm talking about here, but still your approach to the way in which you engage life has a lot to do with how it is that fear is produced in your life and will often keep you from the very best things that God has in store for you. Our passage this morning found in Mark chapter 4. Jesus has been spending a lot of time trying to teach about the kingdom of God. And he's sharing parables specifically. The kingdom of God is like, and then he shares a parable about what the kingdom is like. He's using stories because he feels like if they can't connect to the truth, that they could tie into the story, which will then reveal the truth in time because the story becomes more apparent as he's discussing. But they've been working all day. Jesus has healed people. They have brought them in mass, and now it's evening. They've put in a hard day in the arid Palestinian climate and are now tired. And Jesus says, let's go over to the other side. The reason he's saying this in part is because the crowd is there and if they stay, there's not going to be any rest. And so they need to push out from where they are currently stationed because if they don't, eventually they're going to find themselves overwhelmed even more. So it's now evening and they push out, tired from a day of ministry, maybe thoughtful about some of what Jesus has shared. And we pick up our reading there, Mark chapter 4, verse 35. It says, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side, leaving the crowd behind. They took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats that were with them. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. Like, how do you sleep in the stern of a boat that's nearly swamped, meaning that the boat is so heavy with water that it's starting to sink. And Jesus is not like he's in like a cabin somewhere that's airtight, that the water's not seeping in. I, I want to make plain something about this text is that he is asleep as the water is splashing him in the face. He's asleep on a cushion as the boat is sinking. Perhaps now half his body covered in water. We don't know exactly how much, but let me just say it's not the most comfortable environment in which to sleep, and yet Jesus is sleeping. This matters in the story. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet! Be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Even the wind and the waves obey him. 
This is a really powerful scene recorded in three different ways, in three different tellings in the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's an important story because it's communicating something other than an event that happened. By the way, everything in the Bible, all of it, is there for more than just what it communicates on the surface. That is part of the story for sure. That the events in the Bible happen as they say that they do, but there's something of depth, something that is uh, pedagogical or teach-worthy in this account, as with every account, some truth that is to be revealed, some spiritual uh, nugget in which to use to form the way in which you live your life. And so you've got a lot of elements going on. You've got wind and waves. You've got water coming over the boat. And so there's this way in which we need to draw parallels to our own lives. The ways in which we feel swamped in our lives. It's more than about some men that are on a fishing boat traveling from one side to the other. It's more than about the Sea of Galilee, which was prone to storms because of the high altitude of the mountains and the below, level, this, the below sea level lake that was beneath that often caused the squalls to push through with winds sustained at 50 miles an hour. More than the gusts at 100 miles an hour, it is communicating some measure of revelation to us because there are going to be seasons in our lives where we feel swamped. Have you ever felt swamped? Have you ever been to the point where you feel like there is nothing left for you to give? Where you feel so overwhelmed that you are certain that you're not going to make it through a season. Maybe it was a heartbreak that you walked through. Maybe it was a medical crisis. Maybe it was a, a betrayal or brokenheartedness. Whatever that is, there are moments in life where we feel swamped. And Jesus, knowing that there will be these moments in our lives, he makes sure that these three gospel writers communicate his word to us. To share something that we need. Because fear will try to take each and every one of us out. We'll try to hijack your destiny and mine. Try to keep us as a community from taking important steps. Trying to keep us as families from living into the kingdom design that's been crafted for our lives. There is more to this story than just the wind and waves here. The disciples are completely overwhelmed. Can you blame them? They've been bailing out this boat. But yet all of their bailing and all of their effort could not stop it from being swamped. It's no question that they're asking of the Lord, don't you care if we Trout. Can you identify with that emotion? Have there been seasons of your life that have been marked more by the seeming absence of God than God's tangible presence? Have there been times where you yourself have been swamped and been laying in the bottom of the boat and looking for Jesus and his help and while the waves are rushing over and falling upon everyone in the boat, Jesus 
not in pretend, but in reality is asleep. It's here, though, that I think it's real important that when we're going through seasons where we are feeling swamped, swamped by the amount of work that still needs to be done and our capacity to meet that work, those moments where we're swamped because it seems like problems are rushing in from every side, that we've got to be careful that we don't fuel our own fears because we're really good at providing fuel for them. One of the first ways that we see these disciples and us as well fueling fears is through the words that are being expressed. Notice the word disciples, plural. Go to Jesus collectively. It's not just one disciple that's confused about what's going on here. But the implication is is that everyone in the boat is feeling overwhelmed equally. And the words that are coming forth are this. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Words have power. And our words create worlds in which we live. When we speak violent words in our anger, we create a world of violence. When we speak words of love, when we've been offended, we disarm the violence. There's power in our words as Proverbs 18 and 21 says that life and death is in the power of the tongue. What you speak over your life will have a consequence. It's released in the atmosphere. The other day I was on um, the telephone and I was wanting to receive a phone call and I was really frustrated because I'd made numerous contacts and so I started speaking out loud my frustration. And I realized right in the middle of my speech that I was creating a world of doubt of unbelief, that I was already marking failure before an opportunity for success could ever materialize. How many good things that God has called you to in your life have you talked yourself out of? You have spoken words in the atmosphere of unbelief. You have spoken words in the atmosphere that I can't. I'm not going to be able to overcome. You have spoken words that have then created realities. You don't believe that words create realities. Go and speak an ill word to someone and see how they respond. Or speak a word of love and see how they respond. Or words have power. But what we see the disciples communicating is words that are devoid of faith. Not dissimilar to what we find in that account in Numbers chapter 13. When God says, yes, you can go into the promised land. Yes, you can dispossess those nations. Yes, you can. But it says that a negative report moved among the camp from ten of the spies. Ten. Voices, 10 voices hijacked the destiny of an entire nation. 10. Let that seep into your heart. 10 voices 
we're able to say we can't overcome them. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. If we try to make an advancement, they will crush us before we make any progress. That those ten naysayers took the destiny of an entire people by convincing them that the words that they were speaking, though not rooted in the kingdom or in kingdom economics or in kingdom virtue, stole away the very best that God intended. And I wonder how many times that our words do the same to us. How many times that we speak death instead of life, that we speak hopelessness instead of faith, that we speak destruction instead of peace. Some of you are still living with the pain of words that have been spoken over your life. And those words are destructive. In the Harvard Business Review recently, they put out an article and they said for every negative comment that you need five comments just to counteract the negative. So it would take at least six comments to start to believe. What does that ratio look like in words spoken in your home? Are they words of complaint, words of lament, words of judgment, words of criticism? If there are, just think about what that needs to counterbalance if actual production is going to be made. That there must be way more words of faith spoken, but here in our account in the scripture, there is no faith. You hear no evidence. In fact, the scripture is silent saying, oh, God's got this. No one is recording those words. If they're being spoken, they're not offered to us. Why? Because they're not important to the narrative. The words that are important to the narrative are the ones that they actually believe, which says God doesn't care. God isn't concerned about my situation. And so they go motivated by a lie. How many times have we been motivated by words that are a lie and are meant to bring destruction, not hope? How many times have we fueled our fears because of words that we have bought into, that we have chosen to believe, that are devoid of the Spirit's witness or divine power to counteract them? I feel like most of our fears are generated by words that we have allowed to seep into the essence of our soul. They drive our activity and we wonder why we're always frustrated. We wonder why our homes are still disjointed. The sting of these words are so powerful. And they will always, always get the better of us. It's here, I believe, that it's so important for us to know which words that we ought to be speaking to our situation. If life and death is found in the power of the tongue, just as negative words can produce death, so too positive words can bring forth life. And when we proclaim the, the power and the majesty of God and the goodness of God over our situation, we are giving divine conduit for which God can work. You know what's funny is in that situation where I was frustrated because something wasn't happening the way that I wanted it to, I immediately started speaking life over the situation, started speaking God's grace over it, and do you know what? Life emerged. Not long after that, the phone call that I needed to come came, and the outcome of the phone call was better than I could have imagined. I'm not sure 
what would have happened if I would have just kept speaking negative words in the atmosphere because that's not the narrative of the story I just told. But I can tell you that I've spoken enough negative words over my life in the past to know that they've never once produced life. Never once. They've never once healed my brokenness. They've never once cured my despair. Never once. And so if I recognize that the words that I speak have power and find myself akin to these disciples in this place, I've got to be choosy about the things in which I speak. The second way in which these are fueling the, the fears in their lives is their approach. Here's what I mean. The disciples are approaching this situation a particular way, which then will cause them to yield a particular response and that our approach in life, the way in which we approach situations, ways in which we approach problems, ways in which we approach each day. And for most of us, the reason why we constantly find ourselves in failure is that there's no margin in our approach. We have a paycheck-to-paycheck approach to life, and we'll find ourselves always in a place of want. And maybe you're not doing that from a financial standpoint. Perhaps some of you are. But every time there's a crisis, the car breaks down, and you're living this way, just very strict by by paycheck-to-paycheck-to-paycheck, there will always be an ask that's bigger than you're able to meet the supply. And therefore, you always need some sort of intervention to get you on the right track. That's not, beloved, how God desires us to live. He doesn't want us to have that kind of mode of operation. And so that you don't think I'm just talking about money here, I'm going to talk to you about some of the ways in which you guys are approaching the lives in which you live. That some of you are constantly frustrated because the ask and the demands of your time and of your talent are so great that you have nothing left over. And so when one more thing comes on that page, the things that you have to do or in that life, you find yourself utterly and completely devoid of the strength to meet the challenge that's now come. And here's how most people do that. I've got to cut some things from my life. I'm too busy, too busy to do what it is that's being asked of me. And you know what the first thing is to be cut? Church stuff. I don't have time for the hour and a half on Sunday to give to a service. I don't have time for two hours in my week. Listen, if three and a half hours of your week is hijacking your purpose, it's not the church stuff that's out of order. It's every other area of your life that's claiming more and more while you have less and less. And here's the mystery I know about the kingdom of God. It's this, is that what we do for the Lord is always multiplied back to us. I can tell you that I've walked up on this platform tired, not even wanting to share the truth or to proclaim the message that God has place within my heart because I'm so beat down but there's something about communicating the word of God and walking in my gift that begins to feed my soul and that which was tired and weak and weary is energized by the power of the transfer of the spirit working through my heart it's not just me that that's true for but the enemy sees that we are always approaching situations that way just like the disciples they're tired they're approaching it in their own power They have power to operate a shipping vessel. Can I just tell you that they transport fish all the time through this shipping vessel. They go out, they cast nets, they throw lines, they bring in fish. Their approach is what it is they know how to do best. 
And what's really funny is they're asking advice from someone to our knowledge about who Jesus is has no idea how to fish or how to cast a boat. But somehow always seems to manage to produce more than enough. Cast the net on the other side. Who is this amateur telling me how to do what I've been doing my whole life? He is out of his ever-loving mind telling me how to cast my net and telling me to do it on the other side. Why would he ask me how to do that? They are leaning in. But their approach before that was trying in their own strength and in their own power to do what it is that they've always done. Some of our greatest liabilities are the things that we believe we have the most strength for things that we feel like we have the most capacity for. Whether it's our physical strength or our mental game and how it is that we approach a situation, we can lean too inordinately upon our talents and ability, so subtracting that which we need most from our life, which is Christ within it. That's why the scripture teaches us words like greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And why the scripture always tells us through man this is impossible, but through God all things are impossible. Could it be that our approach to our situations is what's excluding God's presence from within it? And then we cry out, teacher, don't you care if we drown? We've been doing what you've asked us to do for crying out loud. You're the one who told us to go to the other side. You're the one who told us to get in this boat and go there. I didn't want to do it anyway. I was too tired to get in that boat. You saw that we've been working all day. Are you crazy? We needed to get some sleep. Not to go and try to sail through the night. Do you realize I do not have the margin in my life for that? These margins, these small margins that we have, they fuel our fear because we fear that we will not have the strength to meet the challenges which we face. And because our approach to this is always so strained without margins, we miss the grace that God intends to bring through the situation. That we learn here a new revelation of who God is. That God is not just the one who can provide a miracle for healing. That God is not just the one who can provide miracles of provision. That God's not just the one who opens the blind eyes or makes the lame legs walk. But he is the same God that that can command the wind and the waves to stop just as easily as he does everything else. And sometimes it takes us getting to the point where we are swamped out of our ever-loving mind to start to look to the help that we need. God, don't you care that we are drowning? Don't you care that we are beaten down? Don't you care that we have no margin left? Oh, you of little faith. More on that in a minute. I had a friend of mine, Chuck. Some years ago, I, I went to go see him in the hospital. Young guy in his early 20s. Blood pressure, 190 over 140. He's there and they've got him hooked up to all of these leads. They're checking him for stroke. His heart is pounding out of his chest. And I walk into the ER where he is. I say to him, man, what in the world is going on? 
He looked at me and just rolled over. I'd been sending him some messages because he'd missed a lot of church lately and had let down and neglected some of his responsibilities and duty. Maybe he thought that that was his moment that I was going to use this as an opportunity to tell him what it is that he should have done. But that's not why I came. I came there to tell my friend Chuck, I said, bro, the ask on your life are always greater than the demands that you have to meet them. And it's time to reorder some of your life because you're allowing everybody else's priorities to become your priority. And in the process, you are extracting yourself from what it is that God most wants you to do right now. I don't want you to do any work for the Lord right now. Because if you do what you're going to be doing out of the wrong place of your heart, what I want you to do is recognize that you are loved just as you are in this broken, beat-up state. You can't be thinking about the world at large at 190 over 140 blood pressure right now for these next couple of days that you're here. You need to recognize how much it is that God loves you. I watched literally on the little beep beep machine that was behind him, his blood pressure began to drop. Just as the truth of God's word was spoken over his life, that he was loved, that he was cared for, and that God had a plan. He gets out of the hospital, and the guy that hadn't been at church shows up, and he says, man, I need your help. I need to get this back in order. I said, well, the scripture's clear on how it is that we direct our lives. If we seek first the kingdom of God, he'll bring everything else in order. This guy that couldn't be counted on, that was unreliable, became the most reliable and person I can count on the most. And you know what? The blood pressure was no longer a problem anymore. The healing came because the priorities got into alignment with God's kingdom purpose. Could it be that the reason why we're as stressed as we are is because our priorities are out of alignment? Our approach. We've prioritized the wrong thing and gotten unsavory results when God intends for something so much more from us. The third way I think that we fuel our fears is through our insecurities and self-doubt. The disciples in our narrative are riddled with insecurity. They don't feel like they're going to measure up. And I want you to recognize key words in this text. The scripture doesn't use the words Peter and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Thomas and Matthew. It doesn't use proper names. It uses the name disciples. This is important because throughout Matthew's gospel and the others as well, proper names are often used to declare specific things. But here, there's a general mode of disciples, this general term that's being used because these are people that are supposed to be most like Jesus. These are the 12 that were the closest to him. And Jesus is saying, this is what sometimes it's like for my disciples. They think wrongly that I'm unconcerned that just because it seems like I'm inactive at one particular moment does not mean that, 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 that being static in this way is not the same thing as doing nothing. I am doing something here. And your fear and self-doubt are things that I'm trying to address here right now because your insecurities, all of them are rooted in fear. That somehow you're not going to be enough once I leave this earth. And the Spirit's power within your life is somehow not going to produce what it is it's supposed to. You're afraid. You're insecure. Because you're the ones that are carried a mission once I go from this place. I'm calling you to do it. Is there any wonder why they feel so insecure? 
But here Jesus is trying to teach them an important lesson. As my disciples, your call is to do the very same things that I do. If I've told you to heal the blind and raise the dead, I also, because you are my disciples, tell you to command the storms in your life to be still. And I am asleep right now at the front of this boat because I'm looking for someone to step up in this moment that recognizes that God has already given them the power and the authority over what it is that they now face. That there is a Jesus inside of you through the Spirit that gives you authority over every situation in your life. It's not the power you have innately, but the power that comes from the one who has given you the power to do it. It is God himself. This is what Jesus is trying to to address here. You've got insecurity. You've got all of this self-doubt. You keep talking yourself out of things. You have told yourself over and over why it is that you can't. If you just had a little bit more talent. If you just had a little bit more money. If I just had a better job. And we complain and we cry and we continue to doubt ourselves wondering why we can never produce the results. Always expecting God to do for us what God has given us the power to do through his spirit. And I believe that right now, more than any other time in our church's history, it's important that we don't find our security in who we are, but who God is inside of us. Who God is working through us. Who God and what God can accomplish. If he's called you to something, then he intends for you to be able to fulfill it. I know you don't feel like you're going to make it to the other side. But you need to lean into a different power. Because the wind and waves will sometimes be more than you can contain. More than your ability to help. But God's promise says that he will not tempt us beyond our ability to handle it. But that the spirit will come at just the moment. And if we lean into the power that God is given us through his spirit there is no weapon formed against us that can prosper no tongue that can rise up against us that will not falter God has given us the power to overcome all things that the enemy would bring what has your self-doubt talked you out of recently what are the ways that you've thought I can't when God says yes you can if I've called you to go to the other side here's the mystery in this text Of course you're going to make it. If I've called you to go overseas, of course you'll get there. But our lean needs to be in the word of the Lord. I was talking to this beautiful woman named Bonnie some years ago. From an hour perspective, she had it all going on. She's attractive. She was smart. She was good ideas. Her self-doubt because of some of her upbringing and words that had been spoken over her life caused her to be painfully insecure. She kept getting and hooking up with loser people that couldn't produce the, 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 any good for her, and so the relationships were always there. She struggled with relationships with her parents because that environment was unstable. And the insecurity was so great that was, it was profound. You have never seen someone with as much talent as Bonnie had and still not produce in their life. I remember she was sitting in my office one day and I just began to talk to her. I said, you know, Bonnie, there's way more in you than you give credit. She goes, you know, people have been telling me that my my whole life. I said, well, why don't you believe them? 
I said, in the name of Jesus, I call forth your potential for the kingdom of God. You've been living in a place of darkness, but God is calling you now to light. You have been living in timidity when God has caused you to be a voice. God wants you to be an active agent of his transformation in the world. And I call that forth now. And every time I called this person, I called them by a name. I said, you're a world changer and history maker. Here comes the world changer. And there was something about that that began to click inside of young Bonnie's mind and in her heart. And you know what? She began to be a soul winner for Christ unlike any that we had seen. She would go into places and pray a prayer of faith. Why? Because she began to lean into a strength that was from another place, from God himself. The root of all insecurity and self-doubt starts in fear. Fear that somehow we will not be able to measure up to the standard that's been set or fear that we're going to lose what it is that we have. That's really the disciples' question. Jesus, don't you care if we drown? But I'm going to talk about fear's ultimate defeat and where it is that it comes from. Jesus stands up, and it's clear he's frustrated. And the translation, the translators have used exclamation points to describe Jesus' rebuke of the wind and the waves. It's just quiet. Be still, and then he utters these words to the disciples. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. What's really interesting about this text is that I actually see a great mode of faith in the disciples' actions. They are at the end of themselves. They are at the the end of their capacity. And they're going to God, who they believe can help them. Doesn't that sound and look like faith to you? Sure does to me. They are asking God to help. God is responding to their help, and yet Jesus rebukes them. You you guys should have faith. We do. That's why we woke you up. We do. That's why we pray. We do. Two things. First, their faith should have been in the fact that God had already given the power to do what it is that he did. Number one. But the second, and I think more important, and this is fear's greatest enemy, is they didn't have faith in the right thing, and that is God's love. That God's love would make sure that at every point of their life, no matter what it is that they were facing, that they would always have the grace to meet what it is that they needed that there would always be power from within them to overcome. The Apostle Paul says it like this. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. Why do you think he says, but the greatest of these is love? Because that's really where faith, if fear has, our insecurity has its root in fear, faith has its root in love. Because when we recognize how much God loves us, when we recognize God's deep love for the world, that he's willing to come down and die for it, that he's done everything not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, to redeem it, then we can have confidence that God also wants to redeem our lives and everything that he is working is for our good because he loves us. That's why John, the disciple, later on is writing and thinking perhaps maybe about this particular verse in 1 John 4 and 18. He says, you know what? There is no fear in love. Listen to that. There is no fear 
in love. But perfect love drives out all fear. John is talking to the community of faith about what the power of love looks like. And in the same chapter, he says, Beloved, let us love one another because love comes from God. And everyone that loves has been born of God and knows God. Those that don't love don't know God because God is love. I was talking to the staff about the scripture about four or five weeks ago. And I said, it sounds very humanist to say that God is love. But that's not what's happening in this text. He is redefining love by the reference point of how much God loves us. That he's willing to lay down his life for us. That he's willing to bear a cross its scorn, its shame. To suffer egregiously at the hands of his creation. And say, I love you still. And I will redeem that which you have lost and call forth light from even your darkest moment. It's that kind of perfect love that drives away all fear. That selfless love that would rather die than live without you. That selfless love that has made a way for all of creation to find life. That selfless love that keeps the universe going. It's not God's word alone that sustains the universe, but it's his love for the universe that he is saying, I am going to redeem all of this that sustains the movement and the action of his creation. I invite the worship team to come back up. There is no fear in love. That's really what Jesus' rebuke comes back to, to the disciples. It's like, you guys don't get it. You really think I'd let you go under? You really think I was going to let this take you out? You did right by coming to me, but if you knew that you already had the power within you through my spirit to do that, but also if you knew how much I loved you, you wouldn't be worried about those waves. Those waves would be worried about you. The waves that come against your life, those waves of financial strain, those waves of weakness, those waves of, of discord in the family, those waves of, of fear that are coming on the job, those fears that we don't have enough, those waves that come in, his perfect love drives them all away because they're no match to God's power and grace. Some years ago, I heard a story about a terrible fire that was ravaging home in my home city in Tampa, Florida. The firefighters came and were putting out the fire and most of the family escaped except for a seven-year-old. The family gets outside and they recognize they do a head count and the horror. The parents' worst nightmare is being realized in front of them. Their seven-year-old was still inside. They're yelling at the firefighters, you got to go back inside. We have a seven-year-old in there, and so they're saying, we're trying, but there's a huge wall of fire between the first and second, and we're having a lot of problems getting through. Just then, the dad hears in the corner of the house the whimper of his child who He's now peeking out the second story window. Daddy, daddy, the child says, help, help. Flames licking around the child's head, about to engulf the entire room in which they are. 
The dad quickly runs over to where he sees the child crying out the window. And he says, jump! Jump! And the child says to the father, I can't! I don't see you! Where are you? The black smoke blocking the vision of the child to be able to see down. And the father says, it doesn't matter if you can't see me because I see you. Jump. Jump. The child jumps into the waiting arms of the father, embraced in safety and in love. That's just how our heavenly father sees our situation. He wants us to trust, to know that he's already worked it out. But he needs us to stop fueling our fears with our words, with our approach, with our insecurities and our self-doubt, but to trust instead in his love, which is the ultimate rival against fear because it casts it out every time. If you knew how much God wanted your situation worked out, then you would trust that he's already working it out. If you knew how much God was wanting to save your lost loved ones, then maybe you could trust that he's already at work. Sometimes we do a great job of getting in the way of what God's trying to do because we're still bailing. And God says, stop the bailing. It's a different kind of attack. Your ability to bail out a boat will not save you here. You need me to rebuke the wind and the waves. And the way that you do that is through the spirit inside of you. Take a different approach. God is calling us, church, to take steps that we've never taken before. And to move out into the glory of the new day that's in front of us. But to get there, we're going to have to fear less. Fear less. Because fear, for many of you, is stopping you from the very best that God has for your life. The key to being fearless is fearing less and trusting in His grace. Heavenly Father, I just pray right Join now. Pastor Shane of Covenant Life Church next time for another powerful and inspirational message. To find out more about Covenant Life Church, log on to www.covenant-life.com or call 919-462-1932. Remember, living life without direction is meaningless. Living a purpose life with direction from Jesus Christ is your life fulfilled.